I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. My name is Raphael Rowe. Please be warned that this episode may not be suitable for all listeners as it contains detailed descriptions of acts of extreme violence. My guest today is Natalie Quirios, a survivor of one of the most appalling brutal attacks imaginable. After being stabbed more than 20 times by her partner when she was 8 months pregnant, she has rebuilt her life and inspired people with her courage and refusal to be bowed by her trauma. Natalie and her baby survived, but not without life-changing physical and emotional damage. This episode is a truly moving reminder that a life can be pieced back together, no matter how bad the damage. Let me start by asking you to introduce yourself. Just tell me a little bit about Natalie. Ah, so um, I'm Natalie K. Roche. I am now 45 years old, which is a terrible thing to admit, I think. But um, that does make me, I think, officially middle-aged, maybe. Maybe not. Um, I'm from the Midlands, hence the accent. So born and bred in Sutton Coalfield, which is just north of Birmingham. And five years ago, life changed dramatically. But up to that point, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 16 years up to the point that my life changed. And that was kind of how life was. It was a nice, safe, secure place. What were your aspirations as a child to work in the pharmaceutical industry? I, I, I didn't grow up wanting to sell drugs. Um, let's put it that way, which um, <laughs> is literally what I did in the pharmaceutical industry. But um, no, my my aspirations as a child was probably to be a rally driver because um, my dad my dad was a rally driver. My dad was a mechanic and a rally driver. So I grew up with cars being taken apart. Um, my dad rallied minis to start with. Then it was mark one escorts um going back to the 80s here and um i just loved all of that scene the whole rallying cars all that are you still into it are you still into it now um i do love it um 
I've had to, well, <laughs> the police know that I love it because my speeding fines, but um, I have <laughs> I've had to calm down. Um, I'm half Portuguese, um, hence with my surname, people see it and go, oh, where's that from? I'm half Portuguese. So I always said my dad's Portuguese and he's a rally driver. So genetically, I was designed to drive quickly. So I do, yeah, I do really enjoy it. I don't know whether I'll actually get to do it. I used to do a lot of go-karting as well growing up. But that required a lot of money. And unfortunately, we didn't have the money as a family to pursue that dream. You you started off by sort of saying, you know, everything was going smoothly until five years ago when, when your life changed dramatically. And that's why we're here. I want to share your story with my audience, because I think it's both a tragic but such an uplifting story, at least where you are now. And I think people will take inspiration from from what you have to say and share. So let's go back to where you want to start to tell your story and then we can we can unpick it. You know, I want you to tell your story, but then if you don't mind, I will just, you know, just check in on a couple of points just to sort of as I do, find out a little a little bit more. So what happened five years ago to you, Natalie? Yeah, well, if we literally rewind tiny bit back, so if we set the scene of, say, January 2016, I was just approaching my 40th birthday and I was pregnant with my third child, which is not something I thought I'd be doing at 40 years of age, I'll be totally honest. I had had two children from a previous marriage and at this point they are 10 and 6 years of age, but having been divorced from their dad, um, fairly all fairly amicable, but I got together with my partner Bobby who hadn't got children. Um, Now, Bobby and I had known each other for many years. We went to school together. We hung out. I dated one of his friends back in the day when I was a teenager. And weirdly, my wider friend circle had always stayed together. So my best friend from school was married to his best friend. So they're kind of, even as adult group, we're all together. But Bobby and I had lost contact. And it was the wonders, really, of social media and mutual friends that we ended up hooking up going for a drink about a year after I split for my husband and our romance spiraled from there. But because Bobby hadn't got children, here I am late 30s with two kids already, good career, suddenly facing the thing of, well, I really want children. This is what Bobby was saying. I really want a child. I really want a child. And me having to face that. And, I, and, and lots of people have that, let's be honest. You know, we have second families and we, we have families at different stages nowadays in our lives. And so I went with it. I, I had no reason to not, you know, not really sort of think anything differently as far as, you know, I loved Bobby very much and I thought we were in a really good place. And we lived together. So we January 2016, we were living together, planning a wedding, about to have the baby. She was due in the end of March. And here I am just thinking about my maternity leave and being a year off work, which was a bit of a scary place because um, I was very much into my job and my career. And taking that step back was a scary concept. But um, when it turned out, it was literally not going to be the scariest thing that was going to happen. Because when we got to the beginning of March, March the 4th, 2016, life completely blew up. (laughs) So, yeah, March the 4th, 2016 was a Friday. And it was a very ordinary Friday. And this is a bizarre thing. Because people say, when you have a life-changing moment, do you feel it coming on? 
do you feel weird that morning? Do you sense something? Is there a, you know, this whole thing of the sense of foreboding? Like, no. <laughs> um, I woke up next to my partner. So I woke up next to Bobby. It's all kisses and cuddles as usual. I pushed him off to go off to work and sent him out the door. I was like, no, don't have any intentions that way. Go to work. Um, and I just rushed around as usual, getting my kids ready for school. I'd actually taken the week off work. So, I was kind of getting the kids off to school. It was my eldest daughter's assembly. I sat with all the parents taking videos and photographs. And the weird thing is, is those videos are still on my phone now. And I look back at those videos now thinking, I was sat there six hours from a point that I was going to be fighting for my life. And here I am sat in the hall with the other mums and dads, a scene that I'm sure many people can picture, filming my daughter as this part in her assembly with no idea what was literally around the corner. I left. Do you look back on those videos? I mean, you say you reflect, but I mean, do you look back on them to remind you of what it was like just before? Yeah, weirdly, um, we've just had the anniversary of it um, as we're recording this. It was a few weeks ago. And I think that's always my time of reflection where I look back. And I looked, when I look back over the film, and I don't look at them often, I do feel a sense of sadness. When I look at it, because it was such a happy occasion. My daughter's one of the lead parts and she's quite shy normally. And she did really well. And she was wearing one of my jackets. She was playing the mom in this play. And she'd asked to borrow one of my jackets. And I remember at the end of the assembly, she said, oh, mom, can I keep your jacket till the end of school? And I was like, yeah, yeah, just look after it. Don't lose it. And it's all those little things, you know, like the music that was playing was a particular song. And you know, even that sort of thing, you know, Bruno Mars song. And it, I, I can't listen to that song now without going back because they sort of played it a lot in the assembly. And it is a really tough thing because life was literally so normal. And from from school and kissing my kids goodbye, and I was, I, you know, I am the embarrassing mom. I've told you I'm half Portuguese. I've got a proper Latina, exuberant, passionate energy. So completely embarrassed the kids, you know. <laughs> going I love you give me kisses and they're like oh mom please go away (laughs) so yeah um so after embarrassing my children which is a a hobby of mine I went off to the gym Uh, even though I was eight months pregnant I still went to the gym I was still working out keeping my fitness which as it turns out was a key part of how I was going to actually survive what I survived and then I went to the shop to the supermarket and I was explaining to people you know it was the most boring day I said when you're 14 you're heavily pregnant a day off work is about as rock and roll as that um (laughs) you know like some people would be like oh go and do this and like yeah I was going around the supermarket picking up dinner but when I was in that supermarket my partner Bobby phoned me and this was kind of like a turning point of my day where he called we chatted about things like what we're going to have for dinner and you remember all sorts of silly details so I remember we were going to have salmon for dinner and I was buying salmon and because we'd had a conversation about it and it's just stupid things like that that you that you remember. And he asked me, would I go to the bank with him that afternoon? Um, he was going to come home from work. He wanted to pick me up, go to the bank and sort out some money because he wanted to transfer money to me in preparation for my maternity leave. Um, because although my salary was really good, my maternity pay was a lot less and all the bills and all the mortgage came out of my account. So Bobby said, I want to make sure the money's in your account so that everything's covered for the year ahead. And he said, so let's go to the bank. And I, I need you to be there because it's quite a bit of money to transfer. So again, 
nothing to think about. He said he'd collect me at half past two. I told him that I could walk in and he said, no, 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 I will pick you up. Don't be stubborn. I, I'm going to pick you up. You've been rushing around all day. And he said, I'll be there at half past two. Just wait for me. Now, this stubborn temperament continues because I got home and I'm unpacking the shopping and time is ticking on. And we get to half past two and Bobby doesn't arrive. We get to 10 to three and I'm thinking, do you know what? I'm going to walk anyway. And it's kind of one of those sliding doors moments where I made the decision to leave the house. So I leave the house, I lock it up and I phone Bobby as I'm leaving the house to tell him that I'm on my way. And that phone call basically consisted of him being really apologetic, going, oh, babe, I'm so sorry, I'm running late, I'm stuck in traffic, I got caught at work, and full of apology that he hadn't called. And I just said, it was absolutely fine, I'm walking in, I'm going to do some shopping, and just give us a bell. When you arrive, we'll meet up, and we'll go to the bank. And his final words were, I love you. And again, nothing to think anything odd about to happen in life. And I carry on, I walk to the town centre, which is about a... 20 minute walk and just as I approach the town centre I get to what is there's a cut through behind a church and a wide alleyway and it's not somewhere I particularly like it's got a really bad history to it something uh, a girl was murdered there 20 years before and a memorial to her sits at the top of this hill of this alleyway it's called Trinity Hill in Sutton Coalfield and I've hated Trinity Hill ever since because the girl who got murdered was known to some of my friends. She was only a few years younger than me. I was 20 at the time. She was 17. For that reason, I've always had this horrible feeling around Trinity Hill that's just made me avoid it. And ironically, this is the first day I ever walked down Trinity Hill by myself. And I could have taken a longer route around this church that Trinity Hill cuts behind the churchyard. And I, I could go the long way, but it was raining I'd, my baby bump, I'm eight months pregnant, you remember, so my baby bump is sticking out my jacket, it's getting wet with the rain. And I remember just telling myself, just Nat, you're being stupid, you're being paranoid. It's it's it was three o'clock, you know, in the afternoon, just gone three o'clock, ten past three. And I was thinking, Nat, just walk down the hill, stop being so, so silly. You know, I mean, I always, I'll never forget a woman, an older woman was walking up the hill carrying these two carrier bags. And she came out of Trinity Hill and she came out this alleyway and I thought, why are you being silly? She's just walked up there, you know, just go down, stop this paranoia about Trinity Hill. And I set off and I was halfway through. If you can imagine, uh, it was quite a wide, let's say alleyway, it's quite wide. You could easily get a van down there, which was tree lined. And on one side is a churchyard and the other side is a tall brick wall. And I'm walking down there, it's steep hill. And I suddenly hear a man running behind me. And as you do, your your heart starts to pound because you can hear someone running down an alleyway behind you, which is a scary feeling. And we've heard a lot and, about that recently. But exactly. This is the thing. And, and I think it is a fact that if you're a lone female, and don't forget I'm a vulnerable female at this point because I'm eight months pregnant, I look over my shoulder and it is a man and he's got a hoodie on and he's pulled right over and his head's down. He's really scruffily dressed, this guy. And... My sixth sense is just telling me he's coming after me. And then you've got your little other side. It's literally like having the devil and the angel on your shoulder, one telling you one thing, going, he's going to get you, he's going to kill you. The other one going, no, you're safe. Don't be ridiculous. You're near the town centre. This is a lovely area. It's three o'clock. You'll be fine. And so I've got this argument going on. And I think 
if I speed up and get out the alleyway, it goes into this dead end road. But there were cars parked up there. I thought if I could get out into the open, I'll be all right. I'll be safe. So I sped up and I got out. And I, I remember taking a little sigh of relief of I've made it out the alleyway. But then I realised this man is right behind me. And I mean, right, right behind me. You know, if, if someone walks really close to you and you can feel them in your physical space, you don't actually, if someone stands close to you, you can feel it. Uh, they don't have to touch you, but you can feel. And my heart is it's pounding out of my chest. And I just think if I step to one side on the pavement, I'll make it clear to him, just go past, you know, trying to be really casual, like go past, mate, don't worry, go past. And as I did that, as I stepped to one side, he jumped on me from behind um so all I felt was this thud of this man's arm coming around me over my shoulder and pulling me backwards into him so it's like every worst fear you've got is now starting to materialize now I think because he's pulled me backwards into him I can't see him properly he's pulled me backwards he's gripped me with his arm and I can't break free I'm trying as much I'm struggling to break free trying to take my handbag off my shoulder, thinking, well, he's clearly coming to mug me. You know, that's why he's grabbed me. I've got my handbag on my shoulder. And as I try to break free and get the handbag off my shoulder, I see his arm, his right arm flash up into the air. And I just see this very sudden movement. And for I thought, I'm sure I just saw a blade. And I look up and sure enough, he was holding a 12-inch carving knife in his arm, in his hand. And he's got it raised right up in the air above me. And I'm about to scream, you don't need to do that, mate. You don't need to do that, as in you can have my bag. Just go. And just as I go, you, he just brought it straight down and stabbed me through the centre of my chest. And not just once, but repeatedly. And time slowed down. That's the only way to describe it. You almost have an out-of-body experience where you realise you're being injured I can see this stuff and I can feel this pain, but I'm still in denial. Our heads do a really weird thing when you're being attacked. I think it's it's so awful that you're always trying to reason it. And I remember actually looking at my own chest because I almost couldn't believe I was being stabbed. So I had to even look to where he was stabbing to actually take it in. Yes, you are being stabbed. Um, now, he's doing it repetitively. He's not talking. I'm screaming. And luckily, there was a man walking up Trinity Hill. And I screamed to him and I begged to him and I'm pleading with him, please help me, please help me. Now, for that man, who's a man called John, who's become friends with me now, Johnny, and Johnny was walking home from work that day. He said he was walking up Trinity Hill with his headphones in, minding his own business. He said, I saw the attacker jump on you. And he goes, I'll be honest, at first I thought you were mates just messing around, you know, like someone's jumped on you, you're, you're playing, you're ducking. He said, and then I saw your face. And he said, I've never seen anyone's face contort with fear the way that yours was. He said, you looked absolutely petrified. He said, then I saw the knife. Then I realized he was stabbing you. And he had a choice. I mean, horrific choice. You know, you think, if you think of anyone, just put yourself in that position of thinking you're walking home, headphones in, day's all good. And all of a sudden there's now a man stabbing a woman in front of you. And what are you going to do? And Johnny made a very brave decision that he came and intervened. And um, what I didn't know is behind the attacker, there was another man who was walking down the hill behind the attacker. And he said, on his perspective, he saw this man with a hoodie in front of him. He heard me scream. He heard Johnny shout, get off her. 
And he said, and I saw this knife come down. He says, I couldn't see you because the attacker was obscuring you. He pulled me so tight into his body. The attacker got me so far against him that Tony, who was the man walking behind the attacker, said, I couldn't even see you. I just saw this knife come down and heard the scream. And he made a very, very brave decision. He jumped on the attacker's back. This is a man who's making his way into the town centre, who takes a brave decision to jump blind almost onto this man's back at the same time as Johnny's grabbing his arm. So now that obviously pulls us over to the floor and all four of us, so the two men helping me, the attacker and myself are now on the lying on the pavement. And you can imagine the mess of four people scrabbling around, but the attacker doesn't let me go. He's pinned me down and he's still stabbing me. And this is where my head starts to realise it's me that he's attacking because he's not stabbing the two men. He's trying to push them off, but it's me. And I'm, and it's just weird, isn't it? We go into this own sense of paranoia because I'm thinking, well, I haven't upset anyone. Did, did I look at someone funny when I crossed the road? Did I scowl at somebody? Or I'm terrible for making sarcastic comments. I think, oh, my God, you know, did some, like, sarcastic comment fly out? Of my, and I remember thinking, what have I done to him? You know, as if, like, a sarcastic comment would justify someone stabbing you to death. I'm not quite sure. I don't want to interrupt your flow no, at all because it, it's such a powerful story and I just want to hear your testimony. When you talk about what you're talking about now where you were kind of questioning whether you'd done something wrong or anything, how do you have the awareness at that moment to even think in that, that way? Or is it more on reflection that now time has passed, you, you've kind of conjured up these thoughts to explain away the time where you were in the most terrifying situation you could possibly have found yourself in? No, and that's a really good question because I remember at the time thinking, why me? What have I done to you? Why me? And when I met with Tony, who was the gentleman who jumped on his back, I was talking with him about the attack. And he said to me, I said, I remember thinking, why me? And he said, you were screaming it. And it was like, he said, yeah, you were shouting at the attacker, why me? What have I done to you? Why me? So I was trying to work it out. And obviously in the moment, I was still trying to work it out. I think we hear these things, don't we? You know, when you hear these things about if you get attacked, make yourself real to the attacker, talk to them, make it so you're a human being. And I think I was going through those stages subconsciously. Uh, I remember telling him I was pregnant. I did scream, I'm pregnant. And it, it made no odds to this man. And... The two fella, you know, the two gentlemen who were trying to get him off me, they just couldn't get him off me. And the, in the end, Tony, the gentleman who jumped on his back, grabbed the attacker's arm and pinned it to the pavement with the knife so that he could just to stop him from stabbing me anymore. So they pin his arm down. And in that split second, the attacker let go of me. So he'd been holding me all this time, but because he got distracted that his arm had been pinned down, he actually let go of me. And in that moment, and I don't remember, I'll be honest, Ray, I don't remember making a conscious decision about this at all. But I got up and got to my feet. And I decided I was going to try and escape. And so I get to my feet. I'm really unsteady. I'm clutching onto my bump. Um, I'm bleeding very badly. And I'm trying to then stagger down the rest of this hill to the town centre. Now, bear in mind, I can see the town centre ahead of me. So at this point, I've got to my feet, I'm trying to get away, and I'm actually looking 
at the town centre ahead, so much so there was a McDonald's that's opposite the end of Trinity Hill. And I could literally see people going in and out of there. I could see people at the bus stops that were right by it as well. And I remember shouting for help and I thought I was shouting. Maybe I wasn't, but I remember I was saying help and nobody looked. It was like a nightmare. It was it, it's, it was one of those things where I could see all these people doing their normal thing and I'm going, help, help. And not one person looks at the hill. Do you think the words actually came out of your mouth? Do you think you had the strength because you've you've described, and I want to go back to this in a minute, but you've described being stabbed repeatedly by this attacker. He's now pinned to the ground. You've managed to get to your feet. How you found the physical strength to do that is admirable. But do you think the words actually came out of, of your mouth or it was just in your head? I mean, where did you find the strength? I think even if it came out my mouth, I'll be totally honest, it was probably not even a shout because exactly what you said. you got, you got to remember I've been stabbed multiple times in my chest for a start. So my ability to breathe was being compromised right from the beginning. And I was staggering down trying to get help, realised I wasn't going to make it to the town centre because the thing is, is it's just it's our survival instinct. You know, the adrenaline had kicked in. That had got me to my feet. That got me to start moving. But I soon collapsed. And I actually passed out face first onto the pavement. And the guys who'd been holding the attacker said they suddenly realised I'd gone. One of them, Johnny, was looking round for me, thinking, where's she gone? (laughs) There was a girl here a second ago, where's she gone? And he said, I looked down the hill, he said, and you were lying face first and you weren't moving. And he said, I thought you were dead. He said, because you literally didn't move. I came round. But at this point, the adrenaline that got me to my feet the first time had gone and I couldn't stand up. I just could not stand. So I actually crawled on my hands and knees to a brick wall. There was a pillar there by, um, it's like a big brick pillar that led into a car park. And I thought if I could get towards that car park, there might be somebody there. So I actually crawled to there and I propped myself up against this brick pillar um, and I was just exhausted. I remember at this point, this sense of guilt started to sinking because I was thinking about the fact, hold on, two men came to help me and I've legged it and left there with this man with a knife. Yet they came to help me and I've run away. How bad is that? You know, and I remember actually feeling guilty, thinking I've run away. And when I looked back up the hill, so when I started to focus and look back, then again, it was like a scene from a horror film that the two men who were helping were still lying on the pavement alive but just sort of there but the attacker was on his feet and walking towards me he hadn't run off he was now walking down the hill with the knife like and he was actually walking not running he walked towards me and I couldn't move I was just like a lamb to the slaughter in effect I was on the pavement not able to move I put my hand up to defend myself I had one arm wrapped around my baby bump And that arm was very badly damaged. The knife had gone through my wrist, so it was really damaged. So I was holding that protectively around my bump. And then with the hand that was working, I was putting it up in front of my face to shield myself. He pulled up in front of me and he bent down. He held the blade to my face. And he then started punching me to knock me out, which he did manage to knock me out. And when I came round, he was continuing the attack. And it's quite graphic, so I won't describe what he actually did, but he turned the knife towards my wrist and my baby bump. And then he was trying to get the knife on my throat. And at this point, I realised 
I mean, I'm begging with him. I remember screaming at him, I'm a mum, please don't kill me. I kept thinking about my kids that I'd left in assembly that morning. And I'm going, I'm a mum, please don't kill me. He made no difference. He said nothing. And he held the knife against my throat. And I remember thinking, this this is it. I, I can't believe that I'm going to, you know, I remember thinking, this is it. I, this is it. And just as I'm there preparing myself, and I was fighting him after, I, 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 even at this point, I'm, I'm pinning my head down to my shoulder to try and block the knife away from being on my throat. And within a split second, he was gone. So I've gone from him holding his blade against my throat to him actually gone. And I'm really confused. It's like, where's he gone? What I didn't know is one of the gentlemen who had Tony, who had been holding the attacker originally, he went running to the town centre at the bottom of the hill and he stood and he shouted on the top of his lungs for help. Now, I think being a a man uh, with a much louder, deeper voice, he attracted attention. But even then, he said Sutton Town Centre was full. We're talking about 20 past three, town centre, college kids around, all sorts of people. It was very busy. He said, only one person responded. One. Out of all these people that heard it, one person. And he was a lad called Callum who was 18 years of age, who had just come out from getting some food from this chicken place. And he heard Tony shout for help. And to this day, I don't know what made Callum react like he did. He ran across the main road, like literally ran across the road. He ran up Trinity Hill. He said he rounded the corner. He saw me on the floor covered in blood. He saw this man over the top of me. He didn't even realise the man had a knife. And without even a, a thought, he grabbed the back of this man's hoodie and his belt and he literally threw him off me and threw him onto the ground. And that was at that point. It, it, if Callum had been one minute later... I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Your throat would have been cut. Yeah, and I wouldn't have survived that. And, it, it, you know, I just would not have survived that. Um, I used to have a mark on my neck where the knife had been held so they could see where it was, and it was. He was very accurate. Behind Callum came three police officers, um, which is, again, this is how it's all such a weird how coincidence, how everything unfolded. Three police officers were on foot patrol in the town centre. We don't normally have a foot patrol in the town centre, They were doing a pilot project. They happened to hear the screams. They were walking around. They came running. When they rounded the corner, they said the attacker was over me again. So he was actually coming back to me for a third time. So even though Callum had ripped him off me, he came at me a third time. And at that point, the attacker threw the knife to the ground and they pinned him. And then that's when the attack was over. But at that point, the attack had lasted nine minutes from start to finish, roughly. So, and in those nine minutes, I'd actually been stabbed 24 times. Oh, my God. Let me come back to that. John and Tony, the heroes who tried to and did save your life, had they sustained any knife wounds themselves? John had one knife wound to his hand um, between his thumb and first finger. He had a cut which he didn't even realise he had. And he thinks that's when the attacker was stabbing me, he threw his arm back to fight them off. And obviously the knife was in his hand. So he got a, a, a flesh wound from that. Tony actually sustained injuries more to his head, which was, he'd been so brave, obviously, because he, he was trying to stop the attacker from stabbing me by grabbing his arm. 
which meant that he then received quite a few blows to the head. So he actually, I think, was either punched in the head or it was when they fell or a combination of both. So he had quite a few head injuries. And, I mean, I I love both of them. I'm in contact with them both still and with Callum and the lad who ripped him off at the end. And all three of them are incredible people. Incredible. They sound like incredible people and we need more of those people in the world all the time. It's incredible that you say, you know, you tried to scream. One of the heroes screamed for help and people just didn't react. And I don't know who knows the answer for that. People scared. Are they so um, indoctrinated by what they watch on television that when these moments happen, people just stand and watch and expect somebody else to do it. Luckily, on, on this occasion, Callum kind of came to the rescue as well. I mean, you couldn't ask for more. Three men or whether it was three women, but three people came to your aid. It still didn't stop you suffering 24 stab wounds. I hesitate to answer the question, but I will. How bad were those 24 stab wounds? Because I'm imagining, and I'm sure, Natalie, anybody listening to this would be imagining that 24 stab wounds are death wounds. You you don't come back from 24 stab wounds, especially if those stab wounds, and I hate using this word stab, but it's the only word, you know, especially if those wounds were deep enough to penetrate and inflict internal damage. I, I don't want to get graphic about it, but I do want people to understand what you've come through and, and what it means to do something like this in, in the hope that we can stop people picking up knives, thinking it's a defensive weapon or an attacking weapon. You know, it's always been my motto that if we can do anything to stop young people carrying knives or or people thinking that a knife can be used. Just tell me a little bit about those 24 injuries that you sustained, you know. Yeah. And actually what you're saying about the young, you know, young people, I give talks now, which we'll go on to, I'm sure, but I give talks to young people I've been today, all this week now the, the, the schools are open. I'm back in and I do talk to them about the reality of knife crime and they do hear about the attack and my injuries. So um, 11 of the stab wounds were actually in my chest alone and it did pierce my right lung and collapsed it. Um, It's gone through my chest wall to my heart and hit the outer parts of what they call the pericardium. So the outer part of my heart was cut. It gone through my diaphragm in two places. It hit my liver. It had gone through the uterus carrying my baby to my womb the baby's womb and it also when he had turned the knife to my wrist and he did do it on purpose he did cut through the artery in my wrist as well so as the hospital always say and as you quite rightly just said any one of those should have killed me one alone should have killed me they said you know and it was major organ damage and the hospital to this day still say we we don't know how you're alive because you shouldn't be there's lots of things. One, because the police gave first aid, and this is what I would say to young people when I do knife crime talks, I said, I'm alive because people, first of all, stopped the attack. Secondly, because the police were on the scene immediately, they administered correct first aid. So they did things like they tourniqueted my arm. They were pressing on all the wounds. They, This is really awful. They went to McDonald's and went and got the serviettes. They sent somebody to McDonald's, and they were using serviettes from McDonald's to actually press on all of my stab wounds in order to stone the bleed. And I, I was stressed so much with young people. I say, imagine you're in a park, imagine you're in a street. How long, first of all, before anyone calls the emergency services, because depending what it is, some kids are afraid to phone 999 because of consequence to them. 
I said, and also how long before someone, if will someone give you first aid? Because if I hadn't have had that first aid, again, I wouldn't be here. If people hadn't have stemmed that bleed. Um, the other reason I'm here is that the ambulance came out and an air ambulance had been mobilised. So I was actually airlifted out by helicopter from the town centre. When they landed, they were getting updates from the land ambulance who were trying to obviously put an intravenous line into me to get fluids in and they were stemming what they could in the bleed wise but they were getting reports that my blood pressure was only just above what would sustain life so you know when we talk about blood pressures and we say oh it's 120 over 80 or something you know and you've got that big figure over a smaller figure well the big figure needs to be over 60 for you to be alive so usually most people it's 110 120 but it has to be above 60, otherwise your heart can't work, your brain doesn't have enough blood. My blood pressure, the big figure, was 70 and dropping when I was in the land ambulance. Now, bearing in mind, I'm eight months pregnant and I'm hemorrhaging and they can just watch it dropping. So the helicopter had been told the chances are this patient is going to be in cardiac arrest. Their heart will have stopped because the blood supply is not going to be enough by the time that you get there. They still to this day don't know how I was still alive. One of the doctors did say the fact that I was physically fit helped because it helped my system cope with the shock better. And I think it was also a determination because the whole time when I was in the ambulance, when I was in the helicopter, the one thing that kept me going, I'll be totally honest, was my children because I kept thinking about my two girls I'd left in assembly. I was so scared. I was so scared that I was going to die and... I was going to leave them because although I got on very well with my ex-husband who was their dad and they had a very good supportive dad at the end of the day they lived with me they were my babies and I was so so scared it almost made me hang on I remember actually having to will myself to calm down because I could hardly breathe my right lung had fully collapsed at the scene so I was breathing on one lung. And when the helicopter came in, they said, we don't have time to put a chest drain in. We're actually going to airlift you as you are, which they would never normally do. But they knew that the time was the critical factor. So they literally put me into the helicopter and airlifted me. Now, it was an eight-minute flight to the hospital. I went to a major trauma centre in Birmingham. And they reckon that when we landed, I had less than five minutes left to live. So if the helicopter hadn't been there, if I'd had to go by land ambulance, I would have died in the back of a land ambulance so so many things it's literally when people say how are you alive I go well it's not just one thing it's almost a whole series of things which you you, when you put together which in some ways people always go how can you say you were lucky because you got stabbed 24 times when you were pregnant again but I was lucky because everything else fell into place and um I suppose one of the the questions that everybody's asking now is the bump yeah you know you you've been you've sustained all these injuries Natalie just please tell us what happened to to your growing baby so the whole time in the helicopter I'm petrified thinking that we've lost her and when they they rushed me straight into theatre as soon as we got to the hospital and they told me they were going to put me into a coma afterwards. And when I come out, the first thing I'm greeted when I'm brought out of my coma, which is the next day, I'm in critical care, machines all beeping around me, is a nurse who's asked me, do I know where I was? Which weirdly I did because I worked for a pharmaceutical company. I actually went, I actually worked at the hospital that I'd been airlifted to. And she said, Natalie, we've got some amazing news for you. You have a daughter and she survived. 
nobody, nobody thought the knife had cut through the womb and it missed killing her by two millimetres. That was the medical report. It was two millimetres from killing her. Her blood supply had been cut off. Um, she was pale. She was floppy. She wasn't breathing when they delivered her. They worked on her. And after about five minutes, she came round. They quickly intubated her, put her into a coma, so breathing tubes in, everything put in. And I was told, and she did sustain brain damage. I was told to expect that, one, she might not survive, and two, if she does survive, she could have severe brain injury for life. That little girl is now five years old. She is in normal school. That's an awful word to say, mainstream school. She has had some speech difficulties. She might have learning difficulties when we get through these school years. Um, They've not been at school much, clearly, because of COVID. But she is a fighter. Seriously, the girl's a kick-ass little fighter determined well we know she takes off <laughs> after don't we because you, you know people can't see you but I can see you and you look like a petite fighter you know you don't look like a giant woman <laughs> who sustained all these injuries um and and I was inspired to talk to you because I heard your story on a news report and I just know that that people would find what you have to say inspiring um, and it's so lovely to hear that your daughter survived and you've been able to develop that relationship and you got back to your other children. Tell me about the attacker or what can you tell me about the attacker? We know he was a beast of a man who did such a horrible thing. Did you ever find out who he was and then tell me what happened to him? So he was arrested on the scene, the attacker. Um, the horrible thing when you I came out my coma I'm in critical care and I wasn't allowed to have any family around me because it's now a criminal case and it's a very lonely and isolated place and there was a police guard by the bed it was an attempt classed as obviously attempted murder they thought it was going to be a murder scene that's how they dealt with it and police officers came to the bedside to question me so you can imagine you've come out you know, it's like if any of you have had an operation, you come out and you're bleary and your head's all over the place. So I've just come out of a coma after being <laughs> in surgery. I'm totally not with it. And I've got these police officers standing, looking very formally all around the bed. And I'm lying flat on my back with all these tubes coming out of me. And they, they ask me questions. I tell them what I remember. And then they broke the most horrific news that the attacker was known to me. And not only that he was known to me, that it was actually Bobby, my partner, the man who'd left home that morning, the man whose final words, if you remember, were, I love you, I'm stuck in traffic, the man whose baby I was carrying, the man who pushed for us to have a baby, the man who I was planning a wedding with, and my world fell apart. There's no other way of putting it. My world absolutely fell apart. It blew up, just blew up, because... I couldn't take it. Sorry, I, I feel kind of confused here because, sorry to interrupt you, Natalie. No. <laughs> um, you probably saw the shock on my face because obviously I've read some details about your case. It wouldn't be fair if I hadn't, although I don't tend to try and find out too much because I like to react as you tell me. and, and that's, But I didn't know Bobby was the same guy because I, I, the name in the newspaper that I read doesn't say Bobby. So I was imagining that you were about to say it was an ex boyfriend sorry for interrupting your world fell apart <laughs> my world fell apart so people always say to me when he was attacking you did you not see it was him so I have to sort of set the context that as I said the attacker jumped me from behind now what he, I obviously didn't know at the time but what I've learned since is Bobby had multiple layers of clothing on during the attack he had four tops on 
And on the outer layer, which was this hoodie, big hoodie, he actually had a rucksack that he was wearing underneath it, but on his front to pad himself out. In the rucksack, he had spare clothes and he had spare shoes. He had the trousers on that he'd gone to work that I'd seen, that I'd washed probably and dried for him. But over the top of that, he had a pair of jeans. So he had two pairs of trousers on. He had two pairs of gloves. He had latex gloves with gardening gloves over the top. And in his back pocket, he carried a a black bin bag. So he pulled the hoodie right over. Um, It's weird because if people see in the media, they'll see his mugshot and you'll see that he's quite bearded almost, um, like very heavy stubble beard. And I actually remember now looking back saying to him, because he normally was quite closely shaven, and he might have a bit of stubble, but quite close. I remember saying to him, crikey, are you going to shave this week? Because that you've got quite a beard developing there. But now you look back and you think, well, actually, I think that was all part of his disguise. He was purposely looking as different as he could. So when he started the attack, no, I didn't realise it was him. It felt like a very bulky man. I couldn't see his face. When he came to me that second time, when I said to you, I saw the attacker walking towards me, carrying the knife, I caught a glimpse of his face. And I remember for a split second thinking, it's Bob. And I remember getting excited thinking, how does he know I'm here? How has he found me? He's come to, you know, thinking he'd come to help me, rescue me, whatever. But then because I saw the knife and because of the size of him, because he looks so big, I thought, oh, don't be stupid. It's just somebody who looks like him. And then I talked myself out of it. And even when he was in front of me, he was punching me in the face. I've had a lot of therapy, as you can imagine, a lot of trauma therapy. And in my trauma therapy, part of it is reliving the attack in minute detail to help process it. And when I'm in this regressed state in my therapy, I remember saying to the psychologist, I said, I can see that he's in front of me, but I can't see his face. I said, I can't see his face, but he's in front of me. And my psychologist said, no, Natalie, what happened is you probably knew, your head knew that it was him, but the only way you could cope with it was to block it out. Because if I was going to survive, I had to block out that this was a man that I loved and trusted, because otherwise I would have fallen apart. You know, I would have totally fallen apart. So our brains are very, very clever. It, I actually totally blocked out that it was him, because the only way I could survive it was to block out who it was. So, yes, deep down. Why did he do this? Why did he do it, Natalie? What did you find out? So um, all in court, if you look at all media reports, I believe very incorrectly states he came from a different cultural background. His family are Muslim. His mom is a devout Muslim. It comes from Pakistan. The family do. And he blamed it on culture. He said that his family, it's true his mom didn't approve of us. He didn't approve of the relationship. She didn't approve of the relationship. Um, His dad had passed away and he was the eldest son and he was very close to his mom. And so it's all this thing about, oh, it's cultural differences. And so many people jumped on the bandwagon of going, oh, it's Muslims are doing it. It's like, no, no, no. I'm sorry. It's not. I don't know. This isn't, that's not the reason he did it. He always knew that his mother disproved. As I pieced it together after the attack, I even faced him in prison. I went to the prison. I spent a whole day in the prison. <laughs> Was this part of a restorative justice yeah, I didn't even know it was process. called that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't it, know. I mean, was you helped just... through that process or did you yeah. just rock up at the prison when you felt fit and capable? <laughs> no, there was quite a fight, I'll be totally honest. Um, a lot of people didn't want me 
at first to go. The prison didn't want me to go because they were worried about his mental health. And But he was fine. He said he wanted to see me. It took a year for me to get in to see him. But I was always determined that I would face him. I was determined he was going to look me in the eye because exactly as your reaction of shock, that was the reaction of all of us, that none of us could piece together why. And he said that he, like I say, in court, he said, the pressure from his family had caused him to temporarily lose his mind and then he'd done it. And I went, that's a load of baloney. He planned it. He, he admitted he'd been planning it for a couple of weeks. As you can hear, it was very premeditated. He was chatting to me on the phone. He'd gone into work that morning. He'd been fine and calm. And this is a man who's about to kill his partner and he was fine. This is not a man who's temporarily lost it. If he had jumped me I know this sounds awful if we'd had a row in the kitchen and he'd grabbed a knife and done it that would be easier for my brain to process than what he actually did because to me that's somebody who's temporarily lost it potentially but he planned it he planned it he he he, he was you know crikey he had two pairs of gloves on he had multiple tops he had multiple trousers he had spare clothes with him he had spare shoes with him you know he he had a black bin bag he had everything planned out this is not a man who's temporarily lost his mind and he blamed his culture as an easy get out clause the truth of it is I worked out from like I say everything I found out in facing him because he was very calm when I faced him was he told a lot of lies as it turned out he was actually a pathological liar probably had been all of his life and everybody who met my ex-partner would say he was a lovely man, so well-spoken, so well-educated. What a, you know, truly amazing man. But what he might have told you, for you to think that, was probably based completely on lies. So he lied to his family, he lied to me, he lied to friends, and he lied about the most ridiculous things. But whatever he lied, it always put him in the best light. So if he told you about a situation, he would frame it so he sounded like the nice guy. And almost slightly slightly a slightly subservient he wasn't he didn't show massive arrogance but it was all a facade and I think he was manipulating lots of people and as I got closer to having the baby he suddenly realized he wasn't going to juggle all of these different lives he was getting kicked out of his business because he'd been ripping his business off financially so his business partner was kicking him out and I think he saw that everything was starting to unravel and in his sick brain I think he thought that if he got rid of me, well, that got rid of a big part of his life. And he could go back to being the the wonderful son and the wonderful person. Because I, I truly believe he thought he was going to get away with it. That's why he stabbed me so many times in the chest to start with. Because all of my stab wounds to start with were in my chest. And actually, as you heard from my injuries, all of my injuries were very focused. So they were chest, they were abdomen. He went purposely, he cut me purposely lengthways through my wrist to go through the artery. Everything he did was to terminate my life. It wasn't that I got slashed randomly all over my body. It was very focused. That is a man who's very much in control. When the police arrived, as I said to you, when the police arrived, he dropped the knife. Okay, if he'd lost his mind, he would not have recognised that the police being there, he would have carried on. The police would have to have dragged him off me. The second the police arrived, he threw the knife down. So he was cognizant enough of what he was doing and what was going on that he dropped the knife. Now, unfortunately, in court, he he pleaded guilty to attempted murder of me and attempted what they call child destruction of our, our baby. He pleaded guilty to both. And there was GBH or ABH of 
John and Tony because they obviously suffered injury. And the motive was never really questioned or looked at. What was his brain thinking and why did he do it? And although the judge in his summary said, you are a very dangerous man because there was no warning of this. You were calm and you were cold and you committed such a horrific act of violence and everything. And it's really, to be honest, the grace of God that I'm here or whatever it is, you know, chance. But then they started going on about him being a good man and he ended up getting just 18 years to serve a minimum 12. So in seven years' time, he's eligible for parole. And I think that I think gets to me is because he pleaded guilty, they didn't look enough into him as a character and they accepted this judgment of, oh, it's cultural difference, put lots of pressure on him, he lost his mind, but he's okay now. And that's kind of the summary. How does that affect you now thinking that, I mean, do you do you feel that you, you that justice is not the right word, but him going to prison for 18 years for what he did, most people would think that's not enough. What do you think, Natalie? I don't think it's enough. I, I really have to be honest. Um, the, the sentence started off, first of all, they talked about whether he'd be a lifer, whether he'd get a life sentence. But then the judge switched it to, OK, well, let's start at either 28 or 30 years. Because he pleaded guilty, he got the full tariff. He got a third off his sentence for pleading guilty. So all of a sudden, we went from 30 years to 20. Then, you'll love this bit, he had lots of character references from doctors and accountants and lawyers that he knew, all testifying what a lovely man he was. (laughs) And because of good character, literally you said in those words, because of good character, he got a further two years off his sentence. Why did you go to see him in prison? I mean, was it about closure for you? Was it about understanding? Because you knew what had taken place in the court wasn't true. You knew that when he said, I loved you, and then attempted to kill you, that, that there's a big gap between the two. So I have two questions here, one that's just come to mind. And that is, during the time you were in your relationship with him, and I suppose this goes to any kind of situation, but during the time you were in your relationship, Natalie, uh, uh, did you not see through any of his lies and his pretense? Or did you ignore that because you were just enjoying your, your relationship? And and secondly, were you the victim of domestic abuse during this time? And were there signs that he was already a violent man and you could end up suffering more than you'd already suffered? Yeah, and both great questions. So on the first topic of whether I'd worked out his lies, there were a few things that I started to notice. So I'd like to class myself as a very switched on woman. There were signs that I thought, and I would ask questions, but he'd always have an answer. And he would come up with the most elaborate answers. In Weirdly, the week before he did it, we had, we, we, we didn't really ever row very much at all. We had the most humongous argument. And I threw at him everything. I threw at him things about his family and whether what he was telling me was true, you know, because he was like, I can do what I want. It doesn't matter what my family think. I questioned about his this finance situation. I started to ask lots of questions. Now, weirdly, it's, you know, if you have an argument and you shout lots of things at somebody and weirdly, this was actually on text because um he was actually at his mother's house and that's why we were having this argument actually on text and um, so I wasn't physically shouting it but um, everything I wrote I was just like it's just like a, a mind dump I was just like you know this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong and at that point you almost say things that you're not even sure if they're true but you're just going to say it because 
every single one of those things I said to him was true, but I didn't know at the time. So he must have read them and thought, oh, my God, she's starting to work out that this, you know, she's starting to put things together here. So I think towards the end, I was getting closer and closer to exposing the absolute liar that he was. And he wasn't. In many ways, he shows really typical psychopathic behavior. So he's got the pathological liar. He's this you read it, you know, often all sorts of reading about psychopaths and they'll talk very much about that. They are very charming people. They are educated, you know, some of them are very educated people. They can be very controlled. And I think what Bob realised was I was the first woman he'd ever lived with. And so all his life he'd managed to do what he wanted. And if if he didn't want to share something about his life or manipulate something, it wouldn't have mattered. And I think when he lived with me, he suddenly realised that he hadn't got that freedom to keep ducking and diving and twisting the truth because all of a sudden there's someone who's holding him accountable. His family had never held him accountable. And weirdly, a family member of his who spoke to me afterwards said, oh, yeah, Bob always lies. No pardon. And she goes, oh, yeah, he's always done it since we were kids. Always done it. He, he, he tells the most elaborate cover-up stories. She said he, he just always lies. I'm like, well, didn't anyone pick him up on this? But they just let him get away with it. And there was things that he did that they covered up. So he took his sister's car when she was pregnant, apparently. I only learned this afterwards. Borrowed her car, promised to her that he was insured, blah, 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 blah. Cut a long story short, he drove to London, had a terrible car accident on the motorway, broke the car off, gave his brother's name at the scene. So he didn't give his name. I didn't know any of this until after um, because he wasn't insured. He completely lied. His sister was left with this whole bill because there was no insurance on the car. And he'd thrown his brother effectively under the bus because he gave his brother's name at the scene of the accident. Well, we already know that this guy, Bob Bobby, is a horrible guy. <laughs> He's a vicious savage of a, of a man. And I don't want to know anything more about him in, in the sense that I want to know about you, Natalie. Why did you go to visit him in prison? Was it closure for you or was it to tell him that you are stronger more powerful than he will ever be, and you are still standing while he's now confined where he deserves to be confined. I mean, what was it for you? It was exactly the the, the latter of the two. So weirdly, you asked. Um, there was no violence in our relationship. There was no outward abuse. Clearly, there was control that I wasn't aware of because he was obviously manipulating me with the truth. There's no outward abuse or violence and he wasn't a violent man by tendency but when somebody doesn't act like that upon you you obviously become very vulnerable and I remember after my attack feeling that if I walked down the road there'd almost be some invisible sign over my head that would say oh I'm vulnerable if you if you want to jump on somebody or attack them go for me and it's just this weird you feel you're walking around with this and I had to feel stronger and I had to feel more in control and I was always determined that I wanted to face him. To be honest, even in hospital, I said I want to speak to him. But it was a case of getting that sense of I'm going to face you and I'm going to make you look me in the eye. And this is going to be on my terms. And actually, this is going to finish on my terms. You, you know, this is going to be not you taking the power and trying to kill me and then giving some rubbish excuse in court. He wouldn't look at me in court. He, he wouldn't look at me once in court. Um, he literally kept his eyes down and would not once look at me and I was like no you're going to look me in the eye you're going to face me you're going to explain to me and if you can't explain to me I'm at least going to have the privilege that I'm going to talk to you exactly about what you did and make you face what you did what injuries you did 
And that's how I, I treated it really, almost like a business meeting in the end. It was, it wasn't even in the visitor's centre. I was taken to the centre of the prison, to the offender rehab unit. They walked me through the grounds of the prison and I'd never been in a prison before. So for me, this was a whole new world. And I was taken to the offender rehab unit. They brought him across and we spent a whole day in this room opposite each other. And I was with him, I think it was about four hours. I remember getting there about half past nine to the prison. I know, half past nine I got to the prison. Obviously, it takes a long time to get into a prison because you've got researches. And and I think I walked in the prison and the first thing I was greeted with was um, there was a fire engine there because somebody set fire to one of the blocks. <laughs> so I was like... Minor incident. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck? And they were like, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. It's like, okay really um then it was for me there in my my vivid imagination thinking this isn't like Shawshank Redemption with the big steel gates going across and stuff like that because like I said never been in a prison and so I can't remember what time they bought him because it takes time to get him obviously out of his cell so once I was there and they'd settled me they then went to fetch him they told me it could be half an hour to fetch him but I walked out of that prison at quarter to four in the afternoon so we had a little break around the lunchtime I think I I went I asked for a break about half an hour I was down having a cup of tea I mean how ridiculous is that I sat there they go would you like a cup of tea and I said oh that'd be lovely what did you tell him you know I'm not asking for the details but I mean did you tell him that he was a horrible man and you don't want to ever see his face again because there is a little bit of me that feels and correct me if I'm wrong there's a little bit of me that feels you're a woman who was carrying this man's baby you was obviously in your relationship, there was love. And all of a sudden, in a moment of absolute savagery, he'd done what he'd done. And you had all the right in the world to to walk away and, and leave him to rot in prison. But something drew you to him. And I wonder if that that child that had you know, your daughter that had been handed to you, which was still a part of him, whether that had anything to do to do with it just correct me if I'm wrong I'm just trying to see if there is any any chemistry that was left over in your relationship that worked on you as a woman as a human being as a caring mother etc that made you go into that prison to see him other than just wave your finger at him and tell him he's a horror man yeah and and you know what? that is a really good question because um I've written a book about all of this and my journey afterwards. And actually in that, I'm really honest. Um, and really, it's called Still Standing. When we talk about that, I'm still standing. It's called Still Standing. But um, after the attack, I had to go through a grieving process because you've got to remember, Bobby that left home that morning was a man that I knew of for 25 years and had always been lovely, always been kind. A man, as you quite rightly said, I was about to have a baby with, I was suddenly with this baby. Hormones, are obviously, flying because I'm now a new mom with all the hormones and I had to go through a grieving process I had to grieve the man that I thought I knew so to me I almost had it like that Bobby had died he'd gone to work that day and died but then there was this other man who's on the hill and that man is the same man but my head because my head had blocked it out my my head was struggling to put the man on the hill with the man that I'd known for all those years. So I did have a grieving process. I It took me time. And, and people go, oh, my God, I can't believe that, you know, it, it, it took you time to grieve him and you cried. And I went, well, no, because he literally, it, it was, the, to be honest, the man I knew did die because the man I knew didn't exist. So therefore he did die. 
and there's a man sat there who's a complete monster that I've got to say, well, hold on, this, and this I'm being hard to say, this psychopath sitting in prison is the same man who was at home, but I've got to put the two people together. And I think there was part of that for me to try and put the two people together. By the time I got to the prison, I the, the attack was March 2016. It was June 2017. So it was a year and three months later. Weirdly, it was the, the um, yeah, so it was a year on. The, the trial had been in the June. So it was actually one year on from the trial that I actually walked into the prison. And I think by the time I got to that point, Luckily, because they'd held me off for so long, which was probably partly why they held me off for so long, if I'm honest as well, it allowed me to get into a very different place emotionally. I think if I'd walked into the prison when we did sentencing in the June, if I'd gone in in the August or September, it might have been different. I think by the time I went in June 2017, I was actually in a a much stronger place. I'd found out so much more about his lies. I'd come to terms in the best way that you can with what was going on and for me it was this sense of closure of I want to face him and I also want to say goodbye to the man that I thought that I knew and I did say goodbye and um, when I walked out of HMP Birmingham that day and uh, you will know that it's a weird sensation in prison I I remember walking out of the prison gates and even though they'd walked me through the rec yard to get out I'd gone past all the recreation yards I was in fresh air in inverted commas with your central Birmingham you know it's weird it's still an oppressed air because actually as soon as I walked out the actual front doors of the prison it was only then that I actually felt fresh air and that's really bizarre Really, really <laughs> took a deep breath. Weird, yeah, I do it every time. I, I do this Netflix series. I do this Netflix series, and people may have noticed that when I walk out of the prison to do my last piece to camera, I take this deep breath because I know that I'm sucking in an air that you don't get inside the walls. I digress. Have you had any contact with him since that? No, that moment, no, no contact whatsoever. So that day, I set it very clearly. We talked about. One section was me talking about what he remembered of the attack. And there were questions I had, like ridiculous part. Imagine having a jigsaw puzzle and I'd been this detective, putting all the pieces in that I could from asking different people, finding out different things. But there were pieces of the puzzle that I needed him to provide me. So things like, for me, it was really important to know how long had he been following me? So at which point did he start walking behind me? So how how far had I been walking with him behind me? And it's things like that, you know, like where did you, where where did you leave your car? Where were you parked? It was all those details that I needed to know just for me. And where were you when I made that phone call to you? When I phoned you and you said you were stuck in traffic, where were you exactly? What were you doing? And he was quite reluctant in answering quite a bit. And he actually said to me at one point, I don't remember. I know that's a lie. Don't remember. Don't remember. So we did this section of trying to get the facts, which I got some of them. Then we talked about the emotional state because I wanted him to understand what he'd left emotionally. So I was like, this is what you've left me. These are the physical injuries. And I took photos of my injuries. And this is the horrible part. I took photos of my injuries, the forensic photographs that had been taken, which I got permission to take in. He looked at the photographs and then he was actually looking on my body to see where the scar was. He was looking at it as if I'd given him some murder textbook, you know, and it's like, oh, look at these gruesome photos. And it's like he was looking at them and then looking at me and I was thinking, oh, my God, but you've inflicted. This isn't – he talked as if somebody else did it. 
he literally talked to me as if it was somebody else. That's um, his way of coming, well, not coming to terms, but that's his way of, of overlooking what he's done, the horrific thing. Not coming to terms is what I, I should say. I don't want to d- dwell on this point because I, I suspect it is a sensitive point and always will be. But, you know, you have a daughter with this this man. Was he, did he make any inquiries about your daughter? And, and, and what's the situation now? Does, I mean, I know your daughter's only little and it's going to be very difficult to tell her what you've got to tell her if you haven't already. What decision have you made? I'm not interested in what he wants or does want, what you want, Natalie. Yeah. Well, as you can imagine, what he did ask about Singer. So when I was with him in the afternoon part, we talked about the little one and I made it very clear to him he was to never contact her. He was to stay away from her. And when she's 18, I said she will have the choice because when she's 18, she's an adult. I can't stop her. I hope that she'll never want to see him. But if she does, then, you know, I'll do what I can to support her. But I said, I don't want him to contact. So clearly, because his minimum term is 12 years, when she is 12 or 13, he could be out of prison. And that's a horrific thought that my daughter will just be hitting her teenage years when he could be out, which is a very vulnerable age. You know, I've got two older daughters and I know what that age is like. It's a very vulnerable age, I think, for for any any child when they hit that whole puberty. There's so many things changing and rebellions kick in and all sorts. And if she's like me, I dread to think what she'll be like. But, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I think you should hope that she is because you're an incredible <laughs> person, Natalie. You know that. Anybody who knows you knows that. And anybody listening to this will, will feel that. So you should be very proud of the fact that she's going to be anything like you. You're a resilience in, 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 in the making. It's incredible. Have you told her? So what she knows so far is she knows that mummy was hurt on the day she was born. Um, she knows that we went in a helicopter. I do a lot of fundraising for the air ambulance. So she knows the helicopter that we went in and we've got a little model of the actual helicopter. She knows now, because my hand is quite bent, uh, got very badly damaged. So the tendons and the nerves weren't able to be repaired properly. So my left hand is actually quite badly damaged. So she was asking about my hand last year. And she's going, Mommy, why your hand? And she's going, why hand? And she's like grabbing my fingers that's quite bent. And so I did say to her, I said, well, remember Mummy got hurt when you were born and when you were in my tummy? I said, Mummy got cuts. And those cuts were made by a knife. And some people have, we have knives for good things, for eating our food. Some people use knives in a bad way. And somebody used a knife in a bad way on Mummy. And that's what made Mummy very hurt. And that's why Mummy had to go in the helicopter because Mummy was very poorly. So she knows it was knife and I got cuts as we put it and that mommy's scars or mommy's these marks on mommy because of the cuts she knows now that I know the person who did it she does know that but she doesn't know who yet it's one of those things that I've spoken to lots of child psychologists and they all say and they all advise the same which is for her to know from a young age because the the press reported on it immediately as you can imagine so there's photos of Bobby there's photos of me and reports whilst I was still in critical care. And obviously all the press were saying, you know, obviously it was the father of the baby. So I was never going to get away from the fact that she wasn't going to find out because we live in a digital world. If it was when you and I were growing up, it would have been a newspaper report that somebody could have hidden. Whereas nowadays for kids, everything's digital. It's on the internet. So she was always going to know because it was such a high profile thing at the time. There's lots of news reports. And it's you Google my name and it comes up lots and lots of information. So I, I do have to tell her, and I have to tell her relatively soon before she works it out. Um, on the cover of, really, on the cover of my book, 
is a photo of me and her. She's a small baby and so you can't recognise because I'm not actually allowed to share images or say her name or anything in public. So her name is changed in the book from what it actually is. But she knows even on that, she goes, that's me and you, mommy. So she knows that that photo is me and her. She knows it's about what happened. So, you know, I know full well that I haven't got long left before I have to tell her. And I have to tell her as well before someone else does. Because it's amazing what they pick up. It's amazing what kids pick up. I do talks in schools and I do motivational speaking. And in my motivational talks, there is a photo of Bobby and I that I use to sort of set the scene for people to go, oh, look at that nice couple. And she has seen those slides when I've been working on them in my office. She must have come in and they must have been up on the computer. And it's just a photo of me and him. And she knows. She says, you have a photo of the person who hurt your mommy. But she doesn't know it's her dad. No, no, she doesn't know. Well, I, I wish you all the best. I know that I, I went for a similar situation myself, having been in a prison for something I didn't do, coming out, having kids, and having to tell those kids what happened to me was, was a really difficult thing, but it's so lethargic. So I wish you all the best. And believe me, when you do share that story, it would be such a burden lifted because you can look at your little one and know that they know and then leave it to them to ask any question. But I'm no therapist. I'm just saying it It works for oh, me. No, no, but it is true because it is awful living. Because the thing is, is you got to remember her, her older sisters know this is the problem. Her two sisters know because they lived through it. They were 10 and 6, so they've lived through it. So that's another reason why she always has to know because I could never ask my older children to lie. And they're very close as siblings. They're very close. Obviously, my youngest is mixed race. And bless her, last summer, um, she tans very well. She's got beautiful skin. But my other two, my ex-husband's blonde and very pale. So my other two are really pale. And my littlest one was I kept saying to her sisters, I got tan. I, I got tan. Look. And so she she is noticing things. She's got, you know, um, she is funny. She's so funny. I, I fake tan and she always goes, I get tan by the sun. But mommy gets brown in the night because I put my fake tan on at night. So she always goes, mommy gets brown in the night. I'm like, oh, thanks, darling. But thank you, telling people. <laughs> there, there, there's been a big foray about about the, the death of Sarah Everand, who was killed by, by a stranger. When, when you see things like that on television, does it trigger your moment? And, and what would your message be to other women? Because it's at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about exactly what we've been talking about in the media recently, that when a woman's walking down the street, she has to clutch her keys and go through these experiences that men don't have. And you went through an experience that did actually happen. Do you have a message in your motivational talking? I know you talk generally to kids, but to, to women and, and females in particular, who, who may be going through that moment now where they fear more than they ever have before because of the amount of media attention and the moral panic that's been gen- genuinely created because of what happened to this poor woman, Sarah. Yeah, and I think when the Sarah Everard case came up, I almost went through it with a, you know, because I suppose I can, I can feel what that sense of fear was, you know, the sense of panic and you feel sick thinking about what she must have gone through because she must have been so scared, so scared. And having experienced fear like it, um, obviously I, I can't speak for what she's actually gone through and there's so much still to come out of it, but, yeah, I do connect with it. And I think for for women there is a justifiable conversation about the fact that we do do things like that. We do do things where we, we feel there's a man following us down the street so we'll pretend to look at a house 
as if that's one of our house and we're going to pretend that we're going to knock on the door because that's what we look you know I've done that um, and we'll check over our shoulder I think the thing is to remember it is still very rare what happened to me was a result of it being a targeted thing you know it wasn't a random stranger but the thing for any woman to remember is even at the worst we have so much fight inside of us and we shouldn't have to have to use it but as you said um at the beginning you know I'm five foot four and you know relatively small build and things and shouldn't have survived what I survived but our inner resilience our inner strength is unsurmountable and actually we have enough drive and we have to have that belief in ourselves that we might be physically smaller than men and we might be weaker because you know I'm not as strong as most men I'll be totally honest I'm not you know some sort of superwoman or anything else but we have a strength and we have a resilience that we can get through some amazing things and I, I think every everybody everybody should remember that and it's so true just just one other question I mean I could answer you with you know 20 30 40 questions but obviously you, you trusted in a man you knew for 25 years and he did what he did have you been able to build another relationship and where are you at in life with regard to relationships and trust in men again today? Yeah, and that that was one of the things. Um, I spent three and a half years with a psychologist and that was the best spent time ever because my psychologist helped me build my self-belief because the thing that obviously got completely shattered was my own self-worth, my own self-belief, you know, it just got stripped away from me. and after that period I happened because I was doing a lot of fundraising by chance to have met a man called Simon and he was really lovely and then in my head telling me yeah but you thought Bobby was lovely you know and so you've always got that question in your head but she made me see that you know that Bobby was a, a very my psychologist it was a unique very sick case and actually you know we shouldn't think the same and and I kind of had that determination in me that if I didn't move on to another relationship then Bobby's one Bobby, I feel part of why he also wanted to kill me rather than just leave me was that he didn't want anyone else to have me. And actually, if I then didn't move on with my life, if I didn't have another partner, he would win, you know. And I thought, I'm not going to have him destroy my life. I Maybe I'm a bit of a silly romantic. I don't know. But I thought, no, I want to love again. I want to have somebody. It had to be at the right time. So it did have to be once my therapy was really well through and I got through your sort of you know three three and a bit years of it at that point but I am with somebody called Simon who is lovely we've been together crikey a good year and a half nearly two years and he's incredible and he has to put up with all sorts of things because obviously I question things and he's got used to the fact that if something doesn't stack up in my head I'm going but what about this but he's so open and he knows that transparency and honesty is so so key to me and you know, luckily I've got that with him well good luck for that now you've shared with us that you've written a book and that's called still standing you work as a motivational speaker you raise money for the air ambulance so you're quite prolific in 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 kind of keeping your story alive and so it brings me to what this podcast is about, which is about second chances. And that comes in all different shapes and sizes. What's your message in terms of a, a second chance? Obviously, you survived an horrific attack. And I wouldn't say that's a second chance at life because no one should be trying to take away your first life until your natural time comes. But what does the term second chance mean to you, if anything? 
Actually, term second chance is so right because I was living a good life before, but actually I wasn't living a life with a value and purpose to me, which actually I didn't realise. I was doing the motions of getting a good salary, providing for my family and keeping us financially secure, but actually my true value wasn't really realised. And what the attack has done is, as you said, I do motivational speaking. I do that to adult audiences and I go and speak to young people. I have a community interest company where I go and talk to young people about knife crime. And just being able to either motivate adult group of audiences who've been through tough things, you say, whether it's women or men um, who go through tough times, being able to help young people to really question their decisions, hopefully not carry a knife. All of these things mean I feel I am in small ways making a difference in the world. Not huge because I'm one person and, you know, um, I'm just Natalie. And But I feel I've got more of a value and a purpose and direction. So my second chance has been to go, do you know what? It's not just all about making the cash. It's actually about making a difference. And that sounds cheesy as heck. And even I cringe at my cheesiness there, but it is about making a difference. Natalie, I could talk to you all day long. I, I'd love to unpick. I, I could go right back to the beginning and start asking you lots of questions, but I won't because I've taken up enough of your time. But I will ask, is there anything that you want to share with, with the audience that we've not talked about, either your journey or the work that you're doing today or where people can find out more about you and the work that you're doing today. I don't want people to just navel glaze at your story because you've shared your story. But if they want to help you in the work that you're doing or support the work that you're doing, which is so, so important for for lots of different reasons, how can they do that? So I have a website. Um, My company is called Inspire2, the number two, Quit Blade. So it's i2qb and it's .org. Um, if you look up there, you can actually see different bits of work that I'm doing with the sort of knife crime work. I've also got my Natalie Q Inspire, so it which is all like the motivational side. So people can check out those. Um, obviously, it's all the different things like Instagram and Facebook, although my daughter says it, you have to be a certain age. Apparently, as my daughter so kindly tells me, my 15-year-old tells me, well, it's only middle class uh, middle class middle-aged women mom that go on facebook i was like thanks thanks for that sweetheart um <laughs> so I, I do have a facebook account because i'm a middle-aged woman and um i also have a twitter account so it's natalie k rush which is q u e i r o z which is a weird wonderful portuguese name and um but yeah you can see on the inspired to quit blades and i think my message out to everyone is is a case of if there's anything you feel that you really want to do in life, and I know it's easy to say because we have bills, we have a mortgages, we have um, cars, etc., that we need to pay for children. Gosh, children cost a load of money. We have this reality in life, but actually also at the same time, try and live the true purpose of your life. You know, it might be that you just do some voluntary work with something or you take up a certain hobby, but don't keep putting it off because that Friday was as ordinary as ordinary as anything and I could have lost my life that day and I very nearly did lose my life I was touch and go whether I was going to survive and don't wait for that point of something crisis in your life before you live the life that you really want to it's a great message Natalie thank you so much for sharing your story and spending time with us this afternoon thank you no thank you very much thank you Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. 
it would be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.